This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When I was growing up, my grandmother and mother fermented because that's all they knew. And it was an integral part of our culinary heritage and who we are. And so when we settled in Apple Valley, Minnesota, every winter was Kim Jong season. This is James Beard award-winning chef and restaurateur, Ann Kim, talking about Kim Jong, the Korean art of kimchi preparation. We got enough Napa cabbage from a farm that could literally fill the back of our Oldsmobile station wagon. And we made so much kimchi that the only bowl that we had that was big enough to fit all the brined cabbage was my sister's and I's uh, plastic kiddie pool that we used to swim in (laughs) in the summertime. Visualize this, you know, my grandmother, my mother, my father, myself, and my sister all gathered on the floor of the laundry room surrounding this giant kiddie pool filled with brine kimchi. These days, you can find kimchi, traditional Korean pickled cabbage, in most large American grocery stores. But that wasn't the case when Anne was a kid. There was very little to choose from when it came to grocery stores or ingredients in terms of Korean cuisine in the Midwest. And so my grandmother was really resourceful and made everything from scratch, from the denjang and gochujang and kimchi, all of which are fermented products, by the way. Since then, Anne has been instrumental in bringing Korean staples like these to the attention of restaurant critics across the country. And she's done so in a pretty ingenious way. I always figured that if I can get people who have never had Korean food or understand Korean food or what kimchi is, why not put it on something neutral like pizza? I did some testing and I thought, wow, when the fire hits it, it blooms and has another level of flavors. Anne's first restaurant, Pizzeria Lola, earned her a place among the most highly respected chefs in Minneapolis. And she says it all started with the Lady Zaza, a specialty pie featuring the same kimchi that her grandmother taught her to make in the laundry room all those years ago. But in the early days of the restaurant, Anne's mom was the one doing the fermenting. Our family recipe was so popular that my mom said, I can't do this anymore. You're going to have to make this yourself. And so that's when I said, well, I need a recipe. And my mother said, well, there's no recipe. That's because Anne's mom had learned to work with fermented foods in a very special way. There's a term in Korean called sonmat. 
Son means hand and mat means taste. And that is what my grandmother and mother used. You know, they didn't weigh anything. They didn't measure anything. It was just years of experience knowing what it should look and taste and smell like and say it's perfect. And that's how I learned, too. Despite kimchi's widespread popularity, Anne says these generational fermentation practices are not as prevalent in Korean culture as they once were. It's like anything, right? Nobody's making specific things by hand. You can go to, into a grocery store and buy just literally about anything. And a lot of people are doing a good job at it. And it's convenient. And we want things fast and quick. But fermentation is not fast and quick. It's about taking time and, and the variables that are involved. And, you know, in this life, we don't want variables. We want everything to be consistent and immediate and now. And fermentation is not that. It's about time and care and intention. Everything we eat has a story to tell. Welcome to If This Food Could Talk, a history show for everyone who eats. I'm Claudia Hanna. I teach Mediterranean cooking classes and lead culinary tours to Cyprus, Greece, and Turkey. I introduce food lovers from around the globe to a taste of the old world and to the history behind what we're eating. Today on If This Food Could Talk, we're taking a deep dive into the art and science of fermentation. A food practice with a universal history, one that is deeply intertwined with the development of human culture. We'll meet one of America's foremost fermentation experts and follow his journey from New York City to the hills of Tennessee. Along the way, we'll discover how fermentation has changed the landscape of our world and why he believes reclaiming these ancient practices may have an important role to play in our collective future. I'll also tell you how to make a delicious fermented dish from my childhood, my mom's creamy Greek yogurt and tzatziki. All that coming up right after the break. To really understand fermentation and how it's impacted our world, there's one person we knew we had to speak to. So do you want to start with a tour of the house or do you want me to show you the garden, the solar panels? Like what's Producer Cariad Harmon traveled to the hills of rural Tennessee to meet Sandor Katz. I call myself a fermentation revivalist. And you have a nickname that keeps coming up every time I sit. <laughs> uh, sure. Sometimes people call me Sandor Kraut. Sandor got his nickname because of his obsession with sauerkraut and all fermented foods. He's the author of six books on the subject, including the New York Times bestseller, The Art of Fermentation. And right now, he's showing Cariad around his home. Oh my goodness, this place is so gorgeous. I love the mosaic work. Well, you know, part of this is a 200-year-old log cabin. What shape was the house in when you started restoring it? A shambles. <laughs> Sandor spent four years renovating the cabin before he could move in. It sits at the top of a winding mountain road, and it's totally off-grid, with solar panels and a large vegetable garden out front. Inside, the kitchen is big and bright with high ceilings, lots of windows and skylights, and a huge stone fireplace. Despite all of these upgrades, Sandor's partner, Daniel, is convinced there are ghosts. And that cabin is haunted. <laughs> that cabin's haunted. I, you know, I, I, I have not observed this to be true. It's a <laughs> local lore. Next to the room, which may or may not be haunted, is a wall of pictures and artwork, including a screen print that says, I will ferment myself. That's because fermentation is kind of an art and a science, according to Sandor. 
That's why he's been fascinated by the process for over 30 years. Now he shares his expertise with classes on how to ferment just about anything, from pickling cucumbers to making tempeh. <laughs> I have a very nice kitchen. And also, you know, I host workshops here a little bit. So. Though Sandor is deeply at home here in rural Tennessee, he actually grew up as an urban kid with roots in the biggest city in the country. I grew up in a 14th floor apartment on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. It was a rent-stabilized apartment from 1966. My brother still lives there. <laughs> it's one of those New York stories. In his early 20s, he was inspired by some friends to move to a sustainable community in the South. And since then, fermentation has become his life's work. But he's not just an expert on the food itself. He has a deep respect for the process. In many ways, fermentation has become a lens through which he sees the world. Humans cannot ferment alone. We need the collaboration of, you know, bacteria and fungi. And so if you're someone who's never, you know, given a thought to microorganisms and then you start working with these invisible life forces in your kitchen, well, I mean, that forces you to observe more closely. And it's this collaboration with the natural world that has captivated Sandor and his students for so many years. You can set up for success. There's a lot of factors you might be able to control. But ultimately, like, you cannot control other forms of life. For Sandor, the practice of fermentation is about much more than just food. The way he sees it, learning to work with the mysterious life forces in your kitchen— can cultivate a deeper way of thinking about the world altogether. In his book, The Art of Fermentation, he calls this concept biophilia, essentially an awareness of a greater web of life and ourselves as part of it. And fermentation has been a part of us and our history for, well, a really long time. Fermentation is distinct from other food histories in the simple fact that fermentation is practiced universally. You can't pin down its birthplace or follow its migration path because its origins are literally everywhere. There is not a culture on the planet that hasn't been fermenting food for thousands upon thousands of years. So even if you're not a fan of famous ferments like sauerkraut or kimchi, you might be surprised to find out how many of the foods you eat every single day are products of ancient fermentation practices. I'm going to venture to guess that a good plurality of the people who listen to this show are addicted to coffee like I am and start their days with coffee. Coffee is fermented. You know, we don't see it on our end of things because it's part of the development of the flavor. Chocolate is also fermented. Vanilla is also fermented. Cheeses are almost all fermented. Breads are fermented. You know, all the condiments that we love to put on our food, like mustard, ketchup, and mayonnaise, all are based on vinegar, as are chutneys and salsas. So, uh, you know, just an incredible range of the foods that people eat are, are fermented. And, and I mean, that's just true everywhere. Sandor argues, at its root, fermentation is not so much a culinary practice as it is a gift of nature. So if you wanted to know about the history of fermentation, it starts long before human beings even existed. At its core, it all begins with the science of the natural world. I like to define fermentation very broadly as the transformative action of microorganisms. There are teams of microorganisms all around us. Bacteria, fungi, and other invisible cellular life forms are in the foods we eat. 
the air we breathe. They're on our skin and inside our bodies. And like all life, these microscopic organisms need fuel. They're hungry. They survive on carbs like starches and sugars. And as they process these nutrients, they metabolize them into something new. Now the results, well, they're not always quite so delicious. When you clean your refrigerator and you find a little sort of bag of parsley that's decomposed in the back of your vegetable drawer, that's also microbial transformation. But we never call that fermented. We would say it decomposed, it spoiled, it rotted. But under just the right conditions, those same little microbes that can stink up your fridge, they're responsible for creating some of the most rich and complex flavors in the culinary world. And that, says Sandor, microbial transformations with a favorable outcome. That is what we call fermentation. It happens spontaneously in nature all the time. The Department of Natural Resources is telling folks to be on the lookout for drunk birds. When fruit begins to decompose, the sugars in the flesh come into contact with the wild yeast on the skin. And voila, alcohol. Elephants, monkeys, and birds have all been on the list of creatures who have been known to, well, overindulge. They run into windows. Sometimes you actually see them there where they're falling over, where they've had a little too much to drink. So just like these tipsy robins, Sandra says humans didn't invent fermentation. Instead, we discovered it. There's broad agreement in the literature that alcoholic beverages would be the earliest ferments. And certainly the earliest, like, archaeological record that exists is of pottery shards that have residues of alcohol from a site in China. There is evidence that people were intentionally fermenting alcohol from a mix of rice, honey, and fruit in Neolithic China at least 9,000 years ago. The pottery shards were found at a famous archaeological site called Jiahu in the Yellow River Basin. It's the same place where the earliest playable musical instruments in the world were discovered. Six flutes made from the wing bones of a crane. Researchers think this means alcohol was used along with music in religious ceremonies. But Sandor says that our relationship with alcohol dates much further back. According to the French anthropologist Claude Lévi-Strauss, our most ancient ancestors were likely imbibing before we had even fully evolved into human beings. We're talking hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of years ago. He, you know, sort of tells this story where he imagines a band of pre-human hominoids walking in a forest somewhere and finding a puddle into which a rainstorm has washed a beehive. The honey has dissolved into that water, and it's a little bubbly, and it smells good. And they get down and they smell it, and it smells so delicious. And then they taste it, and it has a different kind of a flavor, but it feels good. And then they drink it, and they get a little bit giddy. And then that's that. They've enjoyed the fleeting pleasures of alcohol, but they don't know how to make it. It's just a phenomenon that happened. In his groundbreaking book, The Raw and the Cooked, Levi Strauss imagines that, at this point, our pre-human ancestors are just using food as a means of survival. But eventually, prepared food becomes a kind of language, an expression of our humanity. 
And then at some point, some group of people realize like, oh, we can climb into the tree and we can like take that hive down and we can put it in water and we can fashion a vessel out of a hollowed out piece of wood or the skin of an animal or a gourd or who knows what. But for Claude Lévi-Strauss, that's the first act of culture is bringing intentionality to that process that previously had been encountered as a natural phenomenon. If Levi-Strauss is right, then this act, fermenting alcohol on purpose, marks a huge turning point in our evolution as a species. It may even have paved the way for civilization itself. Fermentation marked a big turning point in Sandor's personal story, too. And back in the late 80s, there were other invisible forces at work that would transform his life in ways that he was only just beginning to understand. So this is a turmeric flower. It's, it's like trying to be discreet. It stays low. <laughs> it stays hidden. Cariad and Sandor are outside, and he's giving her a tour of his garden. I don't know. These are, these are called long beans. Two weeks from now, these, they'll just cover the trellis. Sourcing food in a sustainable way is at the heart of everything Sandor does. He's growing tomatoes, corn, squash, cucumbers, asparagus— jalapenos, as well as some less familiar foods like yarrow, wakate, and something called a cover crop. But buckwheat is legume, so it sort of works with these bacteria to form nodules in the soil, so it sort of improves the soil. Even at this stage in the process, Sandor is thinking about and working with a vast web of microbial life. But he hasn't always been so connected to that microscopic world around us even if he did enjoy the benefits of fermentation. I've just always loved pickles. Like, I, I could, like, just sit there as a kid and eat the whole jar of pickles. And, you know, if, if the pickles were, were all gone from the fridge, you know, I was the, always the first suspect <laughs> when I started, like, having a little bit more independence in the city as a bigger kid. I'd be off on adventures with my friends. I, I learned that, like, pickles were a really good, cheap snack that we could get at any deli. But I didn't really know anything about the process. About a year after Sandor graduated from college, his mother fell ill. She was diagnosed with cancer, and he moved home to take care of her. But soon, he would have to face a health crisis of his own, one that would lead him to a new life and a passion for fermentation. We'll be right back. When Sandor moved back to New York City to care for his mother, it was the height of the AIDS epidemic. The virus hit the city hard, and the gay civil rights movement was growing. I got involved in AIDS activism, like, shortly after my mother died in 1988. And so I was very deeply involved in that. And I tested positive in 1991. And that really, you know, just forced me to reevaluate everything. Up until this point in his life, Sandor had been on track to work in public policy. He had a job working for an elected official. But with his diagnosis, everything changed. If I was really just thinking about where I could get the best medical care as a person with HIV, I probably would have stayed in New York. But, you know, I, I was more focused on, like, you know, how, how do I live a good life? Around that time, Sandor heard about a queer commune a cluster of cabins in the wilderness committed to sustainability and off-grid living in the most unlikely of places. 
I mean, I was just intrigued by the idea of, you know, queers in the woods of Tennessee. It had just never occurred to me that such a thing could exist. When he got there, the place was incredibly rustic and seemed light years behind his life in New York. There was no hot water. They'd used an outhouse. Everybody showered in the same building. It was a small community of maybe 20 people. Sandor loved it. I was just so stimulated by learning about gardening and learning about building and learning about, you know, wild plants in the forest and hiking a lot. And, you know, it was just a very exuberant time for me. He'd only been there a few months when he got his first lesson in the practical uses of fermentation. That summer, Sandor was about to discover the transformative power of the natural world. The first season I was gardening, it suddenly became clear to me, like, oh, you get these waves in the garden of, like, more than you know what to do with. The commune garden had so much cabbage. It was practically coming out of their ears. They gave some to friends and cooked what they could. But there's only so much you can eat before it goes bad. And then it hit him. I think sauerkraut has something to do with preserving cabbage. I should look into how that's made. I opened up the most generic, common cookbook you'll find in homes in the United States, The Joy of Cooking. And they had a sauerkraut recipe in there. And I was like, wow, I can't believe it's that simple to make sauerkraut. You chop cabbage and you salt it and you season it if you like and pack it into a crock or into jars. And it was so delicious. You know, I just started playing around with it and realized like, wow, this is very versatile and you can season it lots of different ways. And then it's like, oh, kimchi, I love kimchi. That's a lot like sauerkraut. I wonder if that's the same. So I started making kimchi and going to bookstores so I could look through cookbooks of different culinary traditions and learn about different kinds of fermented foods and beverages that I'd never even heard of before. And it became kind of a full-on obsession. Sandor had discovered what our ancestors have known for millennia. Sure, fermentation practices may have started with alcohol and the desire to imbibe, but the power of microbial transformation does not stop there. In the same way that yeast eats sugar and creates alcohol, under just the right conditions, certain hungry bacteria will feed on the natural sugars present in all kinds of food and create lactic acid. And, well, lactic acid... That prevents decomposition. In other words, human beings discovered a game changer. Fermentation is a highly practical way to preserve food. What people typically ferment in different parts of the world are not precious foods that they have just a little bit of that come from far away. It's the things that are abundant in their environment. It's likely that human beings have been fermenting foods since we were semi-nomadic hunter-gatherers. In fact, the earliest evidence of non-alcohol fermentation is a giant fish pit in Scandinavia. It would have held about 66 tons of freshwater fish, and it dates back around 9,000 years, before farming in this part of the world was thought to have even existed. When the pit was discovered in 2016, researchers were stunned. For them, finding evidence of this kind of mass fermentation was groundbreaking. It could mean that early European people were far more advanced and their societies larger and more settled than previously thought. Research in this area is still ongoing, but it's possible that a non-nomadic lifestyle and the birth of agriculture itself 
could not have happened without the ability to ferment and store food. If you're no longer foraging and hunting in small groups, but instead are beginning to cultivate crops and have a large population to feed who all live in one place, well, then the need to preserve the food you farm or the food you fish is essential. It's survival. In every part of the world, depending on what kinds of foodstuffs they had to work with, through observation, through trial and error, people learned a lot of important lessons about how to guide the microbial transformation of our food into something even more wonderful. Um, this is soy sauce. Oh, wow. So it's very thick. It's not Sandor like and Cariad are standing at the kitchen counter. <laughs> Sunlight streams in from the windows, and there are several pots and bottles of mysterious ferments in various stages of production. So, so, you know, this is basically like soybeans and wheat, with a fungus grown on it. Uh, Sandor has been fermenting soybeans in a pot um, for over a year. The soy sauce mixture has a warm, in, yeasty um, smell. It's deep solution. brown and thick. In there, it sort of almost looks like a bean soup. Is that mold growing along the edges? Yeah. Sandor has studied ancient ferments like these for over 30 years. And he says that while the technology around them has changed as civilization has evolved, Nobody's really invented any completely new fermented foods or beverages for hundreds or possibly thousands of years. When I visited Japan, I got to visit a sake maker that had a robotic koji-making machine. So, you know, that that's new. But drinking the bottle of sake that, that resulted from that, I'm not sure that it would taste that different from, you know, a bottle of sake that someone might have made a couple of hundred years ago. But even if no one has invented a new fermented food for centuries— as late as the 1700s, the ancient dishes themselves were creating innovation in the culture around them. Take, for example, the ancient food that helped pave the way for long-distance exploration. In 1768, British naval officer and explorer Captain James Cook was about to set sail on his first Pacific voyage. With a crew of almost 100 men, Cook was prepared for hurricanes, dangerous currents, and uncharted waters. But there was one terrifying maritime hazard that no one had yet overcome. Scurvy. Which is a you know, terrible disease of vitamin C deficiency that actually had been a huge problem in earlier exploratory journeys. Because, you know, they'd be gone from land for so long and they could get meat, they could get carbohydrates, but like what they lacked was like vitamins from vegetables. We now know that scurvy is caused by malnutrition. But back in the 18th century, it was known only as a mysterious plague of the sea. Sailors who left shore for longer than a few months at a time would almost certainly begin experiencing telltale symptoms. At first, crew members reported fatigue and aching joints. But soon, these signs would give way to a frightening and painful illness. The death rate was so high that ship captains accounted for a 50% loss of life on any major voyage. But Captain Cook had the novel idea that a lack of fresh vegetables might have something to do with the disease. So when his ship, the Endeavor, set sail for the Pacific, it was loaded with 7,860 pounds of a different kind of cargo. His cure for scurvy was to 
forced the sailors to eat a daily quota of sauerkraut to prevent them from getting this terrible illness. Though he didn't understand the science, Captain Cook had stumbled on a potent solution. It turns out that vitamin C is actually a byproduct of the fermentation process. So just one cup of sauerkraut has roughly 10 times as much vitamin C as a medium-sized orange. Thanks to Cook's experiment, when the Endeavor returned to England after three years at sea, no fatal cases of scurvy were reported. It would be several years after Cook's voyage that a cure would be widely understood. But according to historian Stephen Bowne, it was a discovery on par with the creation of the smallpox vaccination and the development of steam power. So, if fermented foods have been such a powerful ally in human progress, it begs the question, how did we lose touch with this valuable resource? Though we may eat fermented foods like bread and yogurt every day, most of us know very little about the process that creates them. According to Sandor, one reason lies in another kind of innovation. A hundred years after Cook's first Pacific voyage, a French scientist named Louis Pasteur made a breakthrough so profound that it would change the world forever. Louis Pasteur is credited as the first person who really began to identify the existence of bacteria and distinguish between them. Under a microscope, Pasteur was able to show that living yeast cells are responsible for fermentation. That discovery led him to a greater understanding of another living organism, bacteria, along with its relationship to disease. Within a few short years, Pasteur developed pasteurization, a process which eliminates dangerous microorganisms in food that cause typhoid fever, tuberculosis, and a host of other widespread illnesses. Vaccine development soon followed, and Pasteur's work is widely understood to be one of the most significant advances in medical history. But Sandor says that in our eagerness to embrace this life-saving science, the general public haven't always understood the difference between the microorganisms that make us sick and the ones that make us well. In the popular imagination, I think it wasn't really until the time of the Human Microbiome Project that most people began to recognize just how central bacteria are to our own health and well-being. Sandor is talking about a research project from the National Institute of Health. It was founded to investigate the billions of naturally occurring microorganisms in and on our bodies. After over a century of microbial study, we are on the edge of a new scientific frontier. And Sandor says that fermented foods may once again have an important role to play in the health revolution. After 100 years of, like, you know, bacteria being a bad word and being associated primarily with danger and disease and possible death, you know, people are realizing, like, oh, bacteria are the matrix for all life. For Sandor, fermentation is part of a much bigger picture. The way he sees it, recognizing the existence of these tiny organisms and the essential role they play in our history and our future is an opportunity to transform the way we think about the food we eat, the planet we call home, 
and our connection to all the living beings we share it with. In his recent book, Fermentation as Metaphor, Sandor says, The skin on each of us, which we think of as the boundary between ourselves and the world beyond, is home to many more microbes than there are humans on Earth. All interacting, mutually coexisting, and feeding off one another in ways we are just beginning to recognize. Back in Minneapolis, Chef Ann Kim isn't necessarily thinking about microbes, but rather how she is personally connected to fermentation. It really is the one thing that uh, I think Koreans can hold as their own and say this is a definitive part of our culinary heritage and culture. Korea is a small country. It's a peninsula, and it's been invaded. It's been taken over. It's been through many different wars. And in some ways, Koreans were sort of always being pushed around and having to move from one place to the other. But they always had their cuisine. To me, kimchi represents sort of our spirit and our soul of the Korean people. It can change and it can evolve and be different from its original state, but still really delicious and incredible. So what does it mean to you to make your grandmother's kimchi recipe and carry on this tradition? Oh, it means a lot because as an immigrant child growing up, in a primarily white town uh, in suburban Minnesota where all you want is to belong and to be accepted for who you are. And when you look different, when your parents speak another language, as a young child, you don't know any better. So I was ashamed of the food because nobody else was eating it or valued it. And therefore, I translated that as, I'm not a value So it's become a a real 180 for me, my relationship with Korean food and kimchi in particular, that what used to be a source of shame is now a source of pride. I think the sonmat has been passed down through me generationally, and I'm proud to carry on that flame. And it means a lot that people are showing interest and really loving these flavors. If you want to learn more about Ann Kim and her kimchi pizza story, check out her episode on the Netflix series, Chef's Table Pizza. And so now I want to share a fermented food from one of my family traditions, Greek yogurt and tzatziki. My mom has made yogurt since we were children. It is so easy. All you need is your preferred milk, skim, low-fat, whole, almond, cashew, soy. It really doesn't matter. Some starter and thyme usually about one day of allowing the warmed milk to thicken into yogurt. And in my home, we eat yogurt almost daily. My favorite way to get my homemade yogurt in my belly is by making tzatziki, a cool, fresh yogurt, cucumber, and garlic dish that makes a perfect side to grilled meats and veggies. If you would like to learn how to make Greek yogurt and tzatziki, head over to ifthisfoodcouldtalk.com for the recipes. If you want to hear more delicious stories, be sure to listen out for our next episode. I'm sitting down to talk food with the legendary Jacques Pepin. Subscribe now and be the first to know when the episode drops. From my kitchen to yours, Tisla Madik friends, bless your hands. Take care. Thank you for listening to If This Food Could Talk with me, Claudia Hanna. If you want to support us, you can follow If This Food Could Talk on your favorite podcast listening app. 
And while you're there, please leave us a review. It really helps. You can also get updates on bonus content by following me and American Public Television on Instagram, X, formerly known as Twitter, and Facebook. You can find more information on all of our guests this season on each episode's show notes. Production by Carrie Ed Harmon, Tanner Robbins, Reva Goldberg, Jacob Lewis, Claudia Hanna, Nate Toby, John Barth, and the team at Great Feeling Studios. Editing by Yasmin Khan. Sound design by Carrie Ed Harmon and Jason Sheasley. Associate producer, Kate Hayes. If This Food Could Talk is based on original concept by Claudia Hanna. Executive producers for APT Podcast Studios are Jim Dunford, Cynthia Fenneman, and Sean Halford. Art for this podcast was created by Jay Nungesser. Special thanks to the Virginia Audio Collective at WTJU, Community Radio at the University of Virginia. APT, American Public Television, is the leading syndicator of high-quality, top-rated programming to American public television stations. You can learn more at aptonline.org.